Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we'll be speaking with Dr. Dhruv Kula. But first, we always check in with current health news. And Harlan, you brought up this company to me yesterday. Tell our listeners about this. I'm fascinated after looking into this a little bit. Yeah, I was just, I just said to you, I thought it'd be interesting for us just to talk for a little bit about this company called Hims and Hers Health. That this is one of those, uh, you know, sort of telemedicine companies, direct to consumer virtual care companies, so that basically an individual can initiate a a contact with this company in order to get care. And and what was interesting about them was that they focused on areas that were maybe people would feel were stigmatizing, you know, that that you could approach them for medication about erectile dysfunction or about about baldness, depression. And the company's doing pretty well. So they reported out a a 57% year over year revenue in the third quarter of this year uh, at about 226 million, that's a quarter, compared to 144 uh, last year and in a reduction in their net loss. You know, they're still kind of a startup, so they're still not quite to full profitability. But but I, I raise this because, you know, I've talked to you before about the way in which our information networks work now in healthcare. And In the olden days, you know, you learned to trust an individual. You went to a doctor and that doctor earned your trust over time. And you would begin to disclose things to that doctor with the knowledge that that doctor could keep your confidence. And sometimes, you know, there would be things that you might discuss with that doctor that you wouldn't want to say to anyone else, including even just things like, hey, I'm thinking of leaving my spouse or or about my sexual identity or about depression or erectile dysfunction, a whole range of things. And in this world today, if I disclose that to a doctor, it goes into the electronic medical record and any other doctor, any other healthcare provider who claims to be part of that network who's providing me care can access that. So even when I stub my toe and I go into the emergency department, that person has access to my full record. And in a way, I think it has a chilling effect on the trustworthiness of medicine. And, And this company, as I perceive it, is what people going around their healthcare system. So instead of going to my doctor and saying, you know, I've got a blah, 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 whatever issue, and, and maybe I'm a little embarrassed about, but I want to get treatment for, you're you're able to call this company and you, you have to trust this company's not going to have a breach and not going to do anything with your, your data. But it, it means that now if I have something like, you know, if I have depression and I don't want that in my Yale New Haven hospital record, I may come and stub my toe and I don't want people to know. I don't want everyone to know this. I can go to this company separate and and get that treatment, but it starts to to fragment everything, right? So who can you trust and what who can you disclose to? And I, and I'm wondering, curious what you think about Howie, but I, I think it it's it's what need <laughs> they're responding to a need. Why do people have to go to this company for stigmatizing for stigmatizing illness? one that they're maybe ashamed or embarrassed about because they don't feel they can trust their own system. And I don't know, how, how do you think about this? So there's a couple of things that came to mind for me that were you know fascinating. So first, you know, in class, I often say in a provocative way, I'm not sure if I was in charge, I would do this. I often say that we, we require prescriptions for way too much. Like we should be allowing people to purchase certain drugs without prescriptions. And 
other than controlled substances and other than antibiotics, everything else I have a much more libertarian view about. And it made me think like, that's what this is sort of getting around to some great extent, because they're letting you get antidepressants. They're letting you get erectile dysfunction drugs. They're letting you get uh, hair loss drugs, basically by giving you a prescription after a very brief encounter. A lot of it is just online information and then a very brief encounter. So that simultaneously worries me, but it also sort of feeds into my idea that maybe we're, we're requiring too much of people in order to gain access to some very accessible drugs, things that otherwise should be very accessible. But the, but the, other, the greater point, which I had not thought a lot about until you mentioned it to me, was this issue of privacy. And, you know, I think maybe I'm like too much of an open book, so I'm okay with everything being in my medical record. But you're absolutely right. When I was a much younger person, I may have been afraid of telling somebody something and having it in my chart. Even something about being gay would have been something I would have been afraid of revealing in a medical record at that time. So there is room for us to figure out how do we protect people's information in a way that gives them a level of security and still gives them the full access to the medical system. Or what, what about just giving people the choice of who do I want to know what about me? So there could be a doctor who cares about you. You, you know, you have a strong trusting relationship that you're willing to disclose things to again, not even afraid, but just maybe, inhibited from sharing, but, but this person earned, earned your trust. You're willing to talk to them about it. Of course, in psychiatry, the records are sequestered, you know, often and aren't available broadly within the medical record, but for medical things or even psychiatric issues that you might disclose to a general medical doctor does become part of the record. And I think we have to be thinking about tiered consents so that if I stub my toe, that person, you know, for a woman, that person doesn't need to know I had an abortion. I mean, I, I, you know, maybe that you're, there are just certain things that you may want to keep private or only disclose to certain people. What I've heard doctors tell me is, well, how am I going to care for people if I don't get all the information? And I think that this hymns and hers is showing you that if you continue this system, people will, will find ways outside of the system to get that care. And then you won't have access and it'll be fragmented. Anyway, I think we'll continue to talk about this over time, but it, it is something that is different about our health system today that uh, I think we need to grapple with. I, I do really encourage our, our listeners to go online and look at their website because it, it is fascinating to me. Uh, I think it's hymns.com and then forhers.com or something like that. Uh, I'd never looked at it until you told me about it. And it was fascinating to see how far you can go with certain diseases for getting very quick care. Well, and we're seeing this, by the way, in the anti-obesity medications also, uh, companies that are coming up specifically for you to go to them. Now, you may think that's easier, but it also, for some people, they just don't want to, they want to talk about taking those medications. By the way, the last thing, because I know we're going to get to a great guest today. Uh, so today, terzepatide, uh, was the drug that's made by Eli Lilly, that is all, one of the major anti-obesity drugs, but has never been approved for obesity up until Today, uh, yesterday, with us, so we're recording a day in advance, so it's going to come out on Thursday. On Wednesday, this was now approved for BC. So interesting, you know, the semaglutide, which is the Wegovi, Ozempic drug, you know, Wegovi is the one that's approved. They just put a different name on it for, for obesity. And by the way, they're going to change this, this name for terzepatide, which is known as Munjaro. 
is going to be called uh, Zepbound or something. But it is a drug that people have been using as an anti-BC drug now officially proved. There now are officially two of these GLP-1 receptor agonists that have been so effective. And this week, we'll talk about it next week, at the American Heart Association, the SELECT trial is going to be uh, discussed and published and likely published and will uh, show that semaglutide, that's already been announced by the company, reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease in people with obesity and a history of heart disease by as much as 20%, 20%. So that's just not weight loss now. That has actually improved uh, outcomes. be very interesting. So Howie, let's get on to our guest. Dr. Dhruv Kular is a practicing physician and assistant professor of health policy and economics at Weill Cornell Medical College. He's also a contributing writer at The New Yorker, covering healthcare topics from COVID-19 to convalescence from disease to AI in mental health treatment. His popular press writing has also appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Atlantic. With an emphasis on the intersection of data and narrative and its impact on policy, Dr. Kular's research focuses on value-based care, health disparities, and medical innovation, and has been published in many leading journals, including JAMA and the New England Journal of Medicine. He received his bachelor's and MD degrees from Yale, and during his medical school training, also received a master in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School. He completed his residency at Massachusetts General Hospital in 2017. And I want to start off, you, you have this great paper on convalescence. It's one of your most recent long-form pieces in the New Yorker. Uh, and the title is, Why Are We So Bad at Getting Better? And it resonates with me in a, in a huge way. And, and I know it will resonate with Harlan as well, because Harlan and I talk about this a lot very often with regard to me. I've had two catastrophic hospitalizations, surgeries, and nobody gave me better advice during that time than Harlan did. Harlan was the one who constantly reminded me that, you know, the body does not recover instantly, that there's uh, a loss of cardiac reserve and that you have to recover and that sleep is so important. So many things like he's sort of my, my surgery and hospital doula. And I'm wondering about your thoughts about how do we do better and, and give our audience a little taste for what that article talked about. Sure. First of all, thanks for having me on, Howie and Harlan. Um, it's a real honor to, to be with you and, and to be chatting today. You know, the article on convalescence really um, came out of this understanding that um, I experienced during my own medical training, which was that, you know, we work so hard on treating people when they come into the hospital or the clinic. Uh, increasingly over time, we focus a lot on prevention as well. But if you divide kind of illness into prevention, treatment, and recovery afterwards, um, there's relatively little attention that's given to recovery, even though it's a huge part of actually helping people feel better. And so part of it came from my experiences with patients and understanding that you know our job in caring for them doesn't end uh, after you've prescribed an antibiotic or after you've um, you know, done a procedure, but rather seeing them through the whole process. And part of it came from, you know, a recognition that during medical training, we don't do a good job of helping clinicians understand how to help people through that journey. And this is actually very different than it was, you know, uh, a century or two ago, you know, in the article, I talk a lot about the Victorian period and how 
uh, convalescence and recovery was almost revered during that period. Now, part of that is, you know, they didn't actually have a lot that they could do, you know, in the, t- in the way that we can today. I mean, we have drugs and procedures that, um, you know, would be unimaginable uh, 150 years ago. But I do think we've lost something uh, when we give up on this idea that um, it's not just about prevention of disease, it's not just about treatment, but it's about seeing people through to better health. Yeah, actually, I love that article. Actually, I love almost everything that you write. What's your process when you decide you're going to do an article like that? I mean, how do you, you know, you you become an expert by the time you write the piece, but how do you go from somebody who's got an idea, feels that this is an interesting area to when it your knowledge crystallizes enough that you can really educate others about it when you yourself may not have been an expert at the start? It's a great question. You know, um, I often start by just thinking about something that I really want to learn about. And, you know, in medicine and healthcare, more broadly, there's there's so many issues that um, that 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 come up uh, from time to time that, you know, you just realize that uh, you haven't looked into and you don't have a good handle on it. And I find the best way that I've ever been able to learn about something is to, to write about it. And really, when you're writing a piece, or at least when I'm writing a piece, um, 90% of, of the writing and the thinking happens before you sit down. You know, you're getting your, your mind in a place where you feel like you're able to say something new and different and important and push a conversation forward. And that takes a lot of just understanding what has already been written, what is already known about this topic, what people are saying about it. And so for me, at least, um, a lot of the work is up front reading and learning, talking to people about uh, an issue before I get anywhere near you know, the word document and start writing. You are, you know, a scholar as well as a lay writer. There's not many people who've done that. Uh, quite frankly, you know, Atul Gawande probably is one of the uh, few people that have been able to do that. But you are first authoring papers in prestigious journals on important topics related to value-based medicine, related to health policy topics in healthcare. Um, how are you able to segment your life in such a way that you're able to commit huge energies to these projects and still huge energies to writing and still be an active clinician as well as a husband and father? You know, um, I guess there's kind of a a tactical answer and a, and a, and a philosophical answer. And and the philosophical answer might be that, that I feel each of these things kinds of feeds into uh, the other things. And so, you know, when I think about seeing patients or I think about doing research or, or writing and communicating to a broader audience, something I see in the hospital might spark an idea for a research paper. Um, you know, some collection of research, uh, either that I've done or other folks have done might be the inspiration for an article in The New Yorker that I want to communicate uh, about an issue to a broader audience. And so, um, you know, I don't see it as kind of three separate things that I'm doing, but really kind of one whole that comes together um, in a really interesting way um, because uh, each of uh, each of those kind of disciplines informs uh, the other thing. You know, the, the more tactical answer is that, um, you know, you get kind of good at time management, but you also get good at um, figuring out how to partition uh, your time in a way that um, you have, at least for me, long blocks of time where you're focused on on one activity. And so in a broader sense, everything kind of feeds into um, everything else. Um, but on a day-to-day or hour-to-hour, what I find is, is what's most helpful 
is um, being able to spend two or three hours consecutively on, on one topic and not do a lot of task switching. And so, you know, I will block off an entire afternoon just for writing or, you know, bunch all my research meetings uh, into one morning. Um, my clinical work is such that it is um, able to be divided um, by week. And so I might be on service for a week or two weeks and then not be on service for a couple of weeks. Uh, and so tactically, um, that has been uh, really helpful, kind of keeping everything uh, uh, up in the air. I wonder if you could just give the listeners maybe a sense of, of, of your journey as a writer. Let's just isolate that because I think it's so interesting to me. You know, you come to medical school, you get an MBA, you're, you're on this sort of track. You, are, you also have these research skills that are growing, but you decide to commit yourself to the art of writing and, and actually are able to gain a position at the New Yorker preeminent position to do that kind of writing and, and hone your craft and to communicate and teach people. How did that work? I mean, it, it's not easy to get a position like that at the New Yorker. It's the, you know, it, you could arguably the best place in, in the world if you want to do long form pieces. And, and what, what led you to that decision about, I'm going to commit myself to this and then being able to find, you know, a position like that? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, very early on, you know, high school, early college, I knew that I wanted to be a physician. I mean, that was kind of the core of of what I wanted to be, and still, kind of how I see my identity as someone who cares for other people and um, wants to learn the art and the science of of medicine. My father was a doctor, and and that's a you know a, a well known risk factor for for going into medicine yourself. But I always had this inclination, you know, in part uh, by by people like yourself and Howie. Um, that I wanted to try to contribute the knowledge that we get from uh, seeing patients to broader audiences. And that could be within the academic community through research, or that could be um, to lay audiences. And and over the course of medical school, and then more centrally in, in residency, when I felt like I had a lot more to say, um, a lot of it was just freelancing. And so I would have an idea, I would see something in the hospital, I would um, be engaged in some kind of research. Um, and really feel this desire that I, I wanted to communicate that to people. And so was freelancing and writing op-eds and columns and really started writing for The New Yorker during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, I was caring for patients during the kind of first horrific wave in, in New York City and, and was, um, you know, spending all my uh, days um, in the hospital and then uh, would open up the laptop at night and almost as a kind of a cathartic process, write about what I'd seen, uh, how I was feeling about caring for people who, who often we didn't have a lot of good treatments for at that time. Um, and a lot of that writing ended up making its way into the New Yorker. I want to correct myself. I said MBA, of course, I meant MPP, Master of Public Policy, was the degree that you got, not, not an MBA, as, and as Howie had said. Like I said, I recommend that people take a look at your body of work. But one particular thing in, that you wrote, uh, I thought that was very important. Well, all of it's important, but what what does a heat wave do, do to your body? And you had written also another piece about air quality in hazy days of summer and, and sort of trying to encapsulate this. Can I tell you, can you share with the listeners a little bit about what you took away from that research? Because I really believe that climate change is going to have profound impacts on, on health and is going to require us to be thinking differently about the role of, of the environment and, and you know, its impact on so many different diseases, but also just the way the body reacts to heat. What did you bring away from, from that work that you were doing? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's becoming, um, you know, 
it was always kind of obvious for the past few decades um, in a research and a statistical sense that that um, climate change would have drastic impacts on human health. And I think we just have felt it um, so viscerally over the past few years. Um, and, and so, you know, part of what I'm trying to do here is not necessarily um, advocate for a particular policy, although I do, I do think we need, um, you know, strong policies to address the threat of climate change. It's really to to kind of awaken in as many people as possible the idea that that this is happening, that this is going to be one of the central challenges of, of our um, you know the next few decades, um, and you know that in and of itself was awakened in me. You know, I've always kind of been interested in climate change broadly, but I, I wrote I read a book by Kim Stanley Robinson called Ministry for the Future, and the opening chapter of that book focuses on a a kind of apocalyptic heat wave in India. Um, and it was the first time that it just brought home, you know, what it would be like actually to live through something that was really unlivable. And it just so happened that later that year, India did have the worst heat wave in its history and, and the temperatures reached 120, 121 degrees. Birds were falling from the sky dead. Um, you know, people uh, were having trouble working, uh, living outside, and a lot of the population does live outside. And so I, I had a chance to go to India during that and, and kind of report on what it would be like. And, and the real kind of purpose of that, in my mind, was to, to help people understand that that this could and will be uh, a bigger part of our future. Um, and we need to be taking the steps now to stem off the worst of, of what could happen. Yale Medical School has an unusual number of people going on to careers in writing. I mean, like, I could probably come up with an enormous list, but just on our own podcast, we've had Lisa Sanders and uh, Randy Epstein, and in years gone by, Shep Newland, many, many people over the, over the years. Was there something during the curriculum, was there some reason why you are drawn to writing that Yale either helped with or maybe even sort of sponsored you in some way. What what causes that to happen here? I'm not sure it's something that was in the curriculum per se as, as so much as um, that the curriculum allows people to investigate what it is that they're most passionate about. And so I think it's it's more kind of a general impetus to, to think about the contributions that you can make and then the space to explore those things during medical school and, and ideally beyond. I know we're getting to the end, and I, this is such a terrific in, interview. I actually wish we could go on and on. I want to, I think maybe my last question, because I know we're, we need to close up, is you, you wrote a really nuanced piece early in the pandemic about the struggle to define long COVID. And, you know, you've been writing a lot about the pandemic since, but I, I know that you were also doing research in this area, but you're part of Project Recover, a, a billion, more than a billion dollar effort by the federal government to try to bring more insight to long COVID, and you've published on this topic. I, I was just wondering, where where are you in your thinking now about long COVID, and both from your research and from your reporting? It's a huge topic, um, and it's such an important topic. Um, and I think it's something that um, requires so much uh, you know, nuance and thoughtfulness, um, because it's something that affects so many people's lives. Um, and on the one hand, it's the case that um, it's undeniable that many people in the United States and around the world um, are struggling with the long-term effects of a COVID-19 infection. You know, on the other hand, um, we don't want to 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 make it appear that um, you know it's something that um, 
when uh, you receive a COVID-19 infection that it's, it's a foregone conclusion that you're going to have these long-term effects. And I think a lot of the um, writing during the pandemic, it, it really s- struggled to kind of strike the right balance between helping people understand in a clear-eyed way um, the, the risks that are uh, potentially uh, occurring after such an infection, but also making clear that not everyone um, will experience these consequences. And um, and ultimately, you know, figuring out ways to help people uh, improve, um, you know, thinking about where we started this conversation with regard to convalescence, you know, that's, um, that's a huge part of this is that um, we develop treatments. Um, you know, I remember very early on in the pandemic, uh, dexamethasone became clear as a, a, a very effective treatment. Um, and then there's remdesivir and a series of other medications, including Paxlovid. There's still more, I think, we need to do to uh, help people recover with long COVID, and um, and and I think that again, this this recover initiative is is a huge step in the right direction. But there's more that needs to be done to make sure that people really do achieve full recoveries and are able to get back to their lives uh, in the way that they want to. The field of medicine is very lucky to have you, and I also want to say that our students at Yale are lucky to have you. You're going to come back here tomorrow to meet with. Uh, some of my student groups, um, and you know, you generously give of your time to mentor people uh, and to support them in their careers, and I really appreciate that greatly. And thank you for joining us. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this was really great, really great. Thank you so much, Howie. That was a terrific interview today, and I'm I'm so glad that we brought him on. And again, another one of your wonderful mentees. It's always. Great to see how how wonderfully they're doing in the world. Let's get to to your topic this week. What's on your mind? So whether it's a presidential election year, a midterm election year, or even, you know, quote unquote, an off election year like this one, our elections have enormous consequences and obviously true also for health and healthcare. And this week we saw healthcare play an outsized role in the election results. So in Ohio, voters strongly affirm the right to abortion much to the surprise of pundits from two years ago. In Virginia, voters strengthened Democrats' control of the legislature in what was seen as a proxy for protecting abortion rights. And in Kentucky, the Democratic governor, uh, Bashir was reelected by a substantial margin, despite being in a strongly GOP state, presumably in order to fight for some abortion rights in a state that currently has some of the strictest restrictions, tightest restrictions, in the country. And while it was a loss for health care, the GOP governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves, was reelected by less than 5% in a state that former President Trump won by 16% just three years ago. And why was it a loss for health care? Because the Democratic challenger, Presley, was running on a platform of Medicaid expansion. You know, Howie, I was interested in that race was it really tied that closely to Medicaid ex- expansion? Yeah, it turns out in Mississippi, it's something like 90% or more of Democrats and like 80% overall of the state wants Medicaid expansion. It's not 100% clear they want this for purely the best reasons, but their rural hospitals, as we talked about just a few months ago, uh, their rural hospitals are in grave danger. A lot of them are shutting down. People worry about this. And so Medicaid happens to be a big issue in Mississippi, and the governor has resisted calls to do that. What's the downside of a state accepting the Medicaid expansion? What would be the reasons not to do it besides, 
you know, showboating about, you know, uh, opposing the, you know, the legislation. The biggest reason is really the fear of a, of a bait and switch. The biggest fear is that while the government is willing to fund 90% of the Medicaid, federal government's willing to fund 90% of the Medicaid expansion now, that at some time in the future, it's going to go dramatically down to 50% or 60%, and the state is going to be on the budget for this very large population. Uh, that is the, the most logical explanation I personally think it's mostly ideological, as you alluded to before. But if you wanted to have a, a true justification, there's a long history of our Congress passing a bill at one time and 10 or 20 years it looking very different. And if I were a state, I'd be worried to some degree that it's a bait and switch over time. That's interesting. You know, and, uh, you know, the Ohio result really interested me. I'm from Dayton, Ohio, as you know. Yeah. And, you know, both with, re with respect to abortion, I mean, now a solidly red state, Ohio, is yes. not even in play anymore, but but they yet they voted in ways on abortion and on marijuana. Yeah, marijuana. More, more traditionally associated with a with with a blue state. And I, I don't know, how did how did you perceive yeah, that? Yeah, look, they, and they both they both passed by a similar margin. There are already people in Ohio that are talking about how if abortion wasn't on the ballot, maybe marijuana wouldn't have been approved, but it's hard to to make that uh, supposition at this point. But look, we talked a year ago, if you remember, pretty much right after the election about magic mushrooms. Now we're talking about <laughs> marijuana. You know, maybe maybe it is high time for us to talk about that, pun, pun intended. High time, um, high time. But, right. you know, marijuana is something that we should talk more about on this podcast. It used to be an illicit substance People used it, but generally briefly in their youth and regular users were small in numbers. And now it's growing in numbers in huge ways so that now it's a $34 billion industry. It's growing fast. 11% of young adults use it daily. And that is double the rate of one decade ago. And we know way too little about the long-term effects. And there were two abstracts reported out of the American Hospital Association this week that uh, showed that uh, marijuana use may be uh, associated with cardiovascular um, adverse events. Yeah, but I mean, I think about this. I wonder, did it have an effect on alcohol use, which I think is, you know, as you know, talk about something that's dangerous for society, number of lives lost and, and lives disrupted and so forth. You know, is it minimizing in some ways, the use of Seems alcohol. And then we also have this problem in this country of many people who are casual users of marijuana ending up going to jail. I mean, really having their, their lives destroyed because of, of our legal system. Yeah, no, look, I in general, I'm, I'm completely in favor of legalization of it. But I just think that as we're legalizing it, we should be looking carefully about how do we inform the public about something that we just don't have great information on. Yeah. Yeah, we should have a, a better idea of, of what the trade-offs are, and, and but that's amazing that the, the statistics of the growth. But we've got a, you know local experiments because many states have approved it. Yes. You know, it's almost like a cluster randomized trial where like you know different states at different times, and we should be able to see what the impact has been on populations. Yep. Hopefully, not not a bad impact. Yeah, really great. Thanks for thanks for the discussion, Howie. I mean, it, of course, so knowledgeable about the elections, but it's so interesting how. Health has become such a centerpiece of these elections and maybe likely to continue. Our votes matter. Yeah, they do matter. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman.
So how do we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can still find us on Twitter or X, but you can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. On uh, Twitter, I'm going to keep calling it Twitter. I'm I'm at HMK because that's 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 what I want to remember it as because the X part I think is like yeah, it's changing, but at HMKYALE that's HMKYALE and I'm at the Howie that's at T H E H O W I E. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management and with the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers Inez Gil and Sophia Stump. And to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are amazing. They certainly are. And talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Carl. Talk to you soon.